0: Oh, no. Are you so sad? What's going What's happening to you, Mike? All right. All right. Good. I was nervous for a second. Do you have a decent Tuesday or what? All right. Good. Wait. I think I, I think I know what's happening here. How many of you are feeling heavy-hearted because you miss your mommies and daddies so much? Yeah. It's hard, right? It's hard. I get it. It's hard to be away from mommy and daddy. Yeah, I know. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. The, uh, the section of the video we just watched essentially covers Daniel chapter two and three. There's a lot of stuff in Daniel two and three and so we're gonna be moving pretty quick. In fact, I just wanna highlight a couple things in chapter two. We're gonna spend the bulk of our time in three tonight. Uh, all joking aside, I hope you had a great day. I hope you've had a chance to kind of process some of what we've already been looking at. Remember this week we're talking about what it looks like to be ambassadors, people who are on a journey that God has placed in a place that have dual citizenship that sometimes are treated like exiles, right? How can we have a resilient faith in the midst of a world that doesn't understand and sometimes doesn't care about what we believe? We talked about Daniel 1 over the last uh, two sessions, and in Daniel chapter 1, remember we talked about these young men who were forcibly taken from their home. Uh, Their religious objects were stolen and placed into a place of pagan worship. And yet, when they were asked to eat food that would compromise God's law, they understood that they could influence the culture by agreeing to certain things, saying yes to certain things, and saying no to other things. They had to have a resolve not to defile themselves with the king's food. And as a result, God showed up and gave them favor. And they've been moved. By the time we get to Daniel 2, these guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Belteshazzar, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are their Babylonian names. These guys have been moved into prominent positions. Now when we read Daniel 2 and 3, you'll hear about wise men and magicians and enchanters. We're talking about the counselors of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Daniel and his friends have been moved into a place to influence the king himself, right? And when we come to Daniel chapter two, we're gonna be moving pretty quick here, but you, you kinda get some of it in the video. Let me just give you a quick summary. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And the dream deeply disturbs him and so he goes to his wise men and enchanters and magicians and he says, I want you to tell me the dream and I want you to tell me its interpretation because it really bothered me, right? The deal is though that his wise men and enchanters, they come back to him and they're like, well tell us what the dream is and then we'll tell you what it means. This is a classic trick. When people are trying to convince you that they have supernatural knowledge, uh, whether that's a tarot card reader or it's a fortune teller or whatever, they, they learn some things about you and then they feed back to you the things they think you wanna hear, right? The wise men and enchanters in Daniel 2 are doing the exact same thing. They say, oh, you tell us what your dream was and we'll give you an interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar knows and doesn't wanna be fooled. He knows they don't have any real power. He knows they're just gonna kinda kiss his butt and tell him what he wants to hear. So he says to them, if you're so powerful, and if you're so wise, and you're so mighty, then you should be able to tell me the dream and its interpretation. His wise men and enchanters go, that's not possible, right? We're just guys. We don't know what your dream was. We can't possibly know what happened in your head. You tell us the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, no, if you can't tell me both, I'm going to kill all of you. And they say it's not possible, so Nebuchadnezzar signs a death decree in Daniel chapter 2 for all the wise men and enchanters, including Daniel and his friends, right? Daniel hears about this when one of the king's guards goes essentially to execute Daniel and Daniel says, can you give me a day? Daniel gathers his friends and they seek God in prayer. They ask God to reveal to them the truth of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation and God comes through. He gives Daniel and his friends the dream and his interpretation. There's a place in Daniel 2 where Daniel and his friends worship God and praise him for giving them the information they couldn't have got on their own. Now you saw all of that revealed in the video, but I, the thing I want to highlight in Daniel chapter 2 is what happens when Daniel finally comes and stands in front of Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar has already issued his death decree, right? He's already said the wise men and enchanters got to die. Now Daniel comes in front of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar looks at Daniel and he says... Can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? Now look, does Daniel know the dream and its interpretation? He does, because God gave it to him the last night, right? Daniel knows the answer to this. He's looking into the eyes of a king who's already issued his death warrant. You would think that the easy answer for Daniel would be like, yeah, I can tell you what you want to know, because Daniel has that information. But that isn't Daniel's answer. Let's look at it together. In Daniel chapter 2, pick up with me in in chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 26. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian name, are you able to make known to me the dream and, uh, that I have seen and its interpretation? Verse 27, this is the part I want you to catch in chapter two. Daniel answered the king and said, no, right? He leads with no. Now I gotta tell you, if you're trying to like, prolong your life, if you're trying to prolong well, you know, your ability to kind of do business in Babylon, this is a bad answer. Daniel takes a gamble here, And the gamble is that the moment he issues the word no from his mouth, that Nebuchadnezzar will just have him killed, right? But it's important enough to Daniel to get this sentence out that he leads with no. Here's what he says. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, right, in verse 27, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. For what it's worth, Nebuchadnezzar already heard that answer the day before from all the wise men. All the wise men and enchanters had already said, we can't tell you the dream and its interpretation. What Daniel does here is repeat the bad news that Nebuchadnezzar had already heard. It's a risky move, but it's a vital and important move. Here's why we're highlighting it. Here's what Daniel says next. He says, no wise men or enchanter or anybody else can tell you your dream and its interpretation, but look at verse 28. If you're the kind of person that takes notes, you want to underline something or circle it, I would say circle that word, but, because it's a big but in the Old Testament, right? Right? 28 he says this but while no man can do it there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these he goes on to tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream and its interpretation Nebuchadnezzar like you saw in the video goes your God must be the real God because you were able to tell me this thing but that conversion is short-lived, right? It doesn't last very long. Here's what I want you to take away from chapter two, and you can study that in greater length if you want later on, but for our purposes tonight, here's what I want you to see. It was vitally important to Daniel to not take the glory for himself that only belonged to God. What was nerve-wracking for Daniel as he stood in front of Nebuchadnezzar is that he'd already heard all the negative news, and Daniel was nervous that as he stood before Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar said, can you tell me what I wanna know? That if Daniel said, yeah, I can, then Nebuchadnezzar would falsely believe that the power rested in Daniel. This whole time as we've been talking about what it looks like to live a resilient life of faith in a world that doesn't necessarily believe or care about the same things you believe in, I've been talking over the last two sessions about the fact that we are called to be emissaries of the kingdom of God. That our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ is not to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to the Lord Jesus, right? To point away from ourselves. Daniel does that beautifully here. He doesn't take the glory for himself. He doesn't even let Nebuchadnezzar think for a second that Daniel is the one that was able to solve this thing. He points away from himself to God. As you and I are evaluating what it's going to look like to live a life for Jesus in this day and age, it is vital for you to remember That you were called as a subject of the kingdom of God with dual citizenship in California and America and the kingdom of God to be pointing away from yourself. In the New Testament, John the Baptist does this better than anybody else. He's always pointing away from himself to Christ. It's it's a very important thing to do because people will give you credit for things you had nothing to do with. I remember one time I was uh, teaching at a junior high camp in Southern California and after I was teaching, I had just really, just like very nice, like, you know, just like a sweet little, she, I, she had to be like fifth, sixth grade. She was teeny, right? This little girl comes up to me after I'm teaching, and she says, Pastor McWaters, Pastor McWaters, And I said, yeah. And she goes, she goes, I just have to tell you. She says, you have the anointing of the Lord upon you, you know? And I was like, okay, I didn't really know what to say. Like I got, you know, like, do you say thank you to that? I wasn't really sure. So I'm like, thanks, that's nice. She goes, no, you don't understand. You have the anointing of God upon you. And I was like, okay, cool, like, you too, you know? Like, I didn't know, I didn't really know how to answer. And she's like, no, you don't understand. Every time you read the Bible, your face takes on a heavenly glow. And I was like, oh, that's a little weird, you know? Like, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm bald and there's like a reflection off my head, I'm not totally sure. She goes, no, you don't get it. Every time you read the Bible, your face takes on a heavenly glow. And I'm trying to think like, I do believe I'm called to preach God's word. I have dedicated my life to serving Jesus, so some of that stuff is true. But I'm feeling really weird because it feels like she's investing me with a ton of power and I, I'm not anything special, I'm just like a regular dude. She goes, no, when you read, your face takes on a heavenly glow. And then it dawned on me that like a couple months before that I had stopped using a paper Bible like the one some of you had and I had started using my iPad. And so I, uh, I grabbed it off the desk there and I, I said, does it look like, like this? And I opened it up and she's like, never mind. And she walked away, right? So I kind of burst the bubble there. Uh, And I'm not saying, because there is a part of me that does believe God has uniquely called me to do this particular job, but I don't want anybody anywhere thinking that what I do, I I do because of my own strength or my own glory. I'm not trying to get my name out there. I'm not trying to sell any books. I'm not trying to build a kingdom or an empire or brand myself. What I'm trying to do is point away from myself to the Lord Jesus. If There's something you remembered this week. I couldn't give a rip if you remember my name or what I look like. I want you to remember my king. And Daniel gets that right in Daniel chapter 2. That's the main thing I want you to see in Daniel 2. He stands before the king, and when the king says, do you know something that nobody else knows? He says, nah, but God knows, and he told it to me to tell to you, right? That's important. Now, as we get on to Daniel chapter 3, this may be a familiar chapter for some of you, right? Because it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And so, There's a temptation when we get into a familiar story to sometimes tune out. I just want to warn you about that, and I want to ask you not to do that, right? There are some of you who have grown up in church or around churchy people or whatever, and you feel like, oh, I know this fiery furnace story, and so then your mind just kind of disconnects. I want you to actively resist the urge to feel like you already know this story. Let's look at it fresh in Daniel chapter 3 and walk through it and see how it relates to what it looks like to live a resilient life of faith even when trials come our way says this in Daniel chapter three, verse one. And by the way, if you've ever been required by a school teacher to write a report where you had to have a certain number of words, right? Anybody ever had that happen where you're like, you have to have a 1,000 words or 2,000 words? I kind of feel like maybe when God inspired Daniel chapter three, he gave him a word count because he repeats some things. He kind of he pads it a little. You'll see what I mean when we get there. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices. You see what I mean? He just just repeats that whole list again. It's not necessary. We know who he's talking about. But I think he's trying to hit his word count. Anyway says, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, there it is again, you are to fall down and worship. You could have just said the band. That would have been easier, right? When you hear the band, just bow down to the statue, y'all. But he, he lists all the different instruments. It's fine. He says, When you hear the sound of that music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Verse 6 Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples' nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I think you kind of get the gist, and the video did a great job of sort of setting this up for us. In the video, the king of the trashers says, hey, we're going to worship the tide again. He just pledged fealty to the king, and now he turns that over. That's the exact same thing that happens between 2 and 3. In three, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a statue of himself. I want you to see the difference between the idol, the statue, and the actual God. It tells us in Daniel chapter three that the statue was set up by Nebuchadnezzar, that it was made by Nebuchadnezzar, that one day it wasn't there and the next day it was. All of those things are distinctly different than an actual God. The actual God of the universe was not set up by mankind, He was not built by mankind, He wasn't gone one day and there the next. The true God is not something that can be established overnight by a human being, right? But the world, even the world we live in today, is constantly asking us to worship its idols. Now, it's unlikely that your friends or your teachers or your uh, bosses at work or the news or the social media you're on or whatever, it's unlikely they're going to say to you, like, hey, next week in San Diego we're setting up a big statue. Come down and worship it. Like, that's not the way idol worship works in 2023, The way idol worship works in 2023 is that social media and culture and friends and neighbors and family and teachers and whoever else, pop icons, they look at us and they say, the most important thing is what your body looks like. The most important thing is making money. The most important thing is feeling good. The most important thing is taking the best vacations. The most important thing is having the most followers, right? All of those things didn't matter yesterday, they didn't matter 10 years ago, they didn't matter 20 years ago, and then depending on where culture's at, it goes, this is what matters now. Your body should look like this, your hair should look like this, your relationship should look like this, you should watch these shows and listen to this music and play these games and go to these places and feel these feelings, right? The world puts up their idols and they say, right now, this thing is God. Right now, this thing is God. Worship it with us. And if you haven't resolved yourself, we talked about this last night. If you and I have not resolved ourselves, then we're not going to worship the stupid gods that pop up from time to time because the world tells us this is what's valuable or this is what looks good or this is what feels good. If you haven't resolved yourself to ignore the false gods of this world and to only worship the one true God that wasn't built by man or established by any human king, but has existed forever, you'll be tempted to bow down to money. You'll be tempted to bow down to sex. You'll be tempted to feel like your life would be just a little bit better if you had a few more followers on TikTok, right? You'll be tempted to get sucked into the value system of a culture that's calling something God that is not God. You have to be prepared now to recognize the idols of the world. To recognize when the world is saying, this is the most important thing, that you don't have to believe it. And you definitely don't have to bow down. Nebuchadnezzar sets up the statue, and he says, when the band plays, everybody bows down, and if you don't bow down on my statue, off with your head, right? We'll throw you in the fiery furnace. Not only that, look at what happens next. Look at verse 8. It says, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. O, you, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I want you to notice two things about this particular interaction. When you stop worshiping the world's gods, there are people who aren't going to like it, right? Right? There are people who are going to go, like, I've just dedicated my life to making money. I've just dedicated my life to getting a body that looks like this. I've just dedicated my life to having all these experiencing, boosting my followers or whatever. And this person's trying to tell me that doesn't matter. I'm going to take that person out. When you try and undermine the value system of the culture, the culture is going to push back, right? Some of you probably already felt that. There may be some of you who already have said to your friends, like, I'm not sure that this is true. I'm not sure this is right. I'm not sure that the way we look is the most important thing. I'm not sure that making money is more important than actually being kind. And in those moments when you push back against some of these systems, you know what will happen? People will turn against you because they don't want to have their systems undermined. The Chaldeans come to Nebuchadnezzar, and you know what? They're not really mad about God. They're not mad about the true God. You know what they're mad about? The fact that these Jewish guys have been moved into prominent position. They're jealous of their position. And so they rat him out to Nebuchadnezzar. But one other thing I want you to note here is what they say to Nebuchadnezzar is, there are these Jewish guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and what they say to Nebuchadnezzar in this text is they say, they pay no attention to you. Can I just tell you that isn't true? It is not true that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not paying attention to Nebuchadnezzar. If they weren't paying attention to Nebuchadnezzar, they would have just gone along with the crowd. Their ability to take a stand against what's wrong, their ability to show resolve in the face of trials, their ability to do the right thing when everybody else is doing the wrong thing proves that they're paying attention. Here's the point. When you go back down the hill at the end of this week, you go back into your regular life and the regular world... Sometimes the only way you're going to notice that idols are being set up in the middle of the city square is because you were paying close attention. If you don't decide to pay close attention, then idols will creep into your life without you even noticing them. Do you know that idols creep into the lives of religious people all the time? And sometimes we make church attendance the most important thing, or sometimes we make giving money the most important thing, or sometimes we make volunteering the most important thing, sometimes we make how many religious degrees you have the most important thing. None of those things matter to Jesus, but they start mattering a lot to religious people. Well, you know what's happened? Somebody set up an idol and a bunch of other people started to worship it, but it has nothing to do with Jesus. We have to be paying attention in order to recognize the idols that are set up. When the Chaldeans say, these guys aren't paying attention to you, they don't know what they're talking about. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are paying real good attention. And if you and I want to live resilient lives as ambassadors in this world, we have to pay attention to what's going on around us. That's my point, that's my point. There are things that will come your way and you have to be ready for it because if you're not ready and you haven't resolved, you'll, you'll make the wrong mistake. I remember, actually, here's a Hume Lake story. When I, uh, I was newly married, I'd only been married for like, uh, I don't know, like eight months, something like that, and we were up here at Hume Lake, and I, one night I was hanging out late in the Ponderosa Lodge, which is over there by Human Beans deck, and it was me and my brand new wife and one other couple. We were just like sitting by the fire, kind of talking. having. A, it was really, it was a nice night. It was about 1130, and all of a sudden one of the maintenance guys comes in, and he goes, hey, you guys want to see a bear? And I grew up in Arizona, and I'd never been really close to a bear before, now we're in the mountains, and I was like, yeah, I want to see a bear. He goes, there's a huge bear out on the deck. So If you walk out of the Ponderosa Lodge, right there in front of the Hume apparel shop, uh, there's that long deck, there's a tree through the deck, right, right there in front of Ponderosa Dining Hall, massive bear, huge bear, right there in front of the doors. And there used to be a trash can there, the bear had knocked over the trash can, and he was like digging through the trash. So we're like standing there in front of the Ponderosa Lodge, looking at this massive bear, my wife and I and our two friends, and then this one maintenance guy, and he goes, uh, We got to scare this bear away. Like, we got campers up here in the cabins, and if a kid comes down to try to go to the bathroom, like, this bear could hurt him, so we got to chase this bear off. And I'm like, how are we going to chase that massive bear off? And he's like, we got to scare it or something. So we're standing kind of far away, and I I just basically, like, me and my friends, we basically go like, hey, bear, you got to get out of here, man, you know? (laughs) And uh, I'll be honest with you, like, that didn't work. Like, the bear didn't even... He didn't even look up. He just kept eating trash. <laughs> he didn't care we were there at all. So we scoot a little bit closer, right? And now I'm like, now I'm like kind of standing in front of where the apparel shop door is. And the big old bear right by Ponderosa Dining. And I'm like, me and my friends were like, hey bear, you got to get out of here, man. You can't stay here. You got to go. Get back to the forest or whatever your deal is, you know. And this time the bear eating trash, he looks up at us. And then he goes back to eating the trash, right? He doesn't care. So we scoot a little bit closer. And now, I'm not kidding, I'm like, I'm like as far from the bear as I'm like from the third row. I'm the, we're like right here. And the guy, the maintenance guy goes, we gotta puff ourselves up. So we took our jackets and made ourselves look kinda big. We start on tiptoes, we kind of wave our arms. And we go, bear! You gotta get out of here, bear! You know, I don't know. And uh, the bear leans back on two legs, no kidding. And he goes Roo! And I can, you guys, I can feel his breath, you know, like hot, vaporous breath and I turned around like this, and I ran as fast as I could down the deck into the Ponderosa Lodge, and I shut the door and I locked it. And then I looked through the glass, and I saw my new wife standing on the other side with the bear. And uh, it wasn't my finest moment, you know? I'll be honest with you, when I was running away from the bear, when I was running away from the bear, I didn't even remember I was married, like, that didn't occur to me. So I just unlocked the door, you know, and I let her back in. I apologized profusely, and th- it worked itself out. If you, would ask me, if you would ask me the day before, like, would you die for your wife? I'd have been like, yes, I will, you know? <laughs> you, you just said, like, what if a bear was going to try to kill your wife? Would you stand between your wife and that bear? I'd have been, yes, I will. You fight for my wife, you know? And I would have believed that. I would have believed that I would do anything to save her. But in the moment of crisis, when the bear was growling in my face, I took care of myself. I'm not proud of that, and it's funny now, and my wife, we're still married, so it works out okay, right? But what I'm trying to illustrate to you is, and we talked about this yesterday, you have to resolve yourself now, and you have to be prepared. You have to be attentive, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have to see the threats coming so that you can prepare yourself to know how to stand for what's right. If you try to wait until that moment to make the right decision, you'll be led by your fear. You'll be led by your doubt. You'll be led by the peer pressure of other people, by the value system of Babylon instead of the value system of the kingdom of God. And then you failed to be an ambassador, right? So here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar comes to these guys. Go back to to, uh, Daniel chapter 3. It says in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought... So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? You can almost hear Shadrach being like, Oh, I'm so glad you asked, right? Nebuchadnezzar goes, who is the God that will deliver you from me? And they're like, well, let us introduce you to him, right? What I want you to see here is that Nebuchadnezzar is infuriated, and here is the crux of this whole passage, right? In chapter 3, now we are at the heart of it. If you're tuned out, if you're thinking about what you're going to do later, if you're, like, talking to somebody else, tune in for just a second. I don't want you to miss this. This is the, this is the heartbeat of this deal tonight, right? Nebuchadnezzar looks at these young men and he says, I heard you're not doing the thing I told you to do. I heard you're not doing the thing everybody else is doing. We're going to give you another shot. When the music plays, bow down or you're going to die. And no God's going to be able to save you from me then. I want you to hear with clarity Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response because it's profound and it greatly informs our lives as ambassadors. Here's Here's what they say. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king... Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This little speech that they give is really beautiful, and it holds a bunch of things. I want you to see three main things in their little speech. What they're saying is that they are confident. They are confident of three key things. What they say is, first, we know who our God is and what he's capable of, right? So the first thing they said to Nebuchadnezzar is we don't have to answer to you because we know who our God is and we know he's able to deliver us. What they're declaring is their certainty about who God is and how powerful he is. We know who our God is and we know what he's capable of, right? They are certain about who God is. At the end of their speech... They say, no matter what, we're not gonna bow down to your idol. And the reason they say that is that God has strictly forbidden them to worship false idols, right? That was absolutely, one of those non-essential, or one of those essential things that they could not compromise, like the food that had been sacrificed at the king's table, right? They're like, we know who God is and what he's capable of. Secondly, we know what God has said. They are absolutely certain about who God is and how much power he has, and they're absolutely certain about what God has said. They're also, in this little speech, they're certain of one other thing. The third thing they're certain of is their own uncertainty about what God will do. They're certain that they don't know how the story's gonna end. (laughs) They are certain that God's gonna do something but that they don't get to tell him what to do, and that they don't actually have a clue about the way the thing's going to go. Now, we've all seen the cartoons and the stories and the puppet shows and whatever. We know how the story goes. They were living it in real time. And what they say is, we know who our God is and what he's capable of. We know what he said, and we can't bow down to your statue because whatever else happens, that thing ain't God. We also know that we don't know what our God will do. We know what he could do but we don't know what he will do. I just want you to think about what this means for a second, because you guys, this is the key that unlocks faithful service in the midst of trials for you and me. The way we live our lives, when you go down the hill in the world that's trying to constantly get you to bow down to its idols, you want to know how you stand up against that? Remember who Jesus is, remember what he has said, and also remember that you don't know exactly how the thing's going to play out. You don't know what he'll do, because he's God and you're not, Right? There are people in this world who will pretend that they can predict what God will do. There are people who will say, oh, if you give X dollars to our church, God will buy you a speedboat or whatever. That's nonsense, right? No one can predict what God will do. We can know who he is. He's revealed himself to us. We can know what he said. He's given us his word, right? We know who he is. We know what he said. You don't know what he'll do. I want you to understand that in the story of the fiery furnace, the story would be just as cool it would be just as powerful, it would be just as important if these three guys stepped into the furnace and were incinerated. Because the beautiful thing in this story is not that they walk out of the fire in a minute, and we'll look at that. It's not that they walk out. That's not the thing that makes the story amazing. The thing that makes the story amazing is that in the face of all this peer pressure and all of these people saying, you've got to do the thing we're all doing. Why will not you just do it? They say, oh, we can't do it because we know who God is. And we know what he said, but we don't know what he'll do. And that doesn't matter. Whether we live or die, there's a right thing to do, and it's to honor God, right? This is the way you and I navigate the parties. It's the way we navigate the relationships. It's the way we navigate the kitchen tables where your parents maybe don't understand your faith. It's the way you navigate the science classrooms. It's the way you navigate the college dorms. It's the way you navigate your life as an emissary of the kingdom of God. You have to know who Jesus is. If you're here today and you're expecting to be an emissary of the kingdom of God and you have not dedicated yourself to knowing Jesus more deeply, how can you possibly stand in front of all the pressure and say, I know who Jesus is? Because you don't. If your idea of Jesus is a guy in a white robe and a blue sash who's essentially a white dude, you don't know Jesus. That's not who he is. That picture that hangs in all of the little Sunday school classrooms, that's not the Jesus that's revealed in this place. You have to be able to say, I know Jesus, and I know what he said. And it's not enough to know what he said because you hear a preacher say something about him once a week or once a year at camp. Me telling you some things about God is not enough. You and me, we're disciples, right? Some of us. Some of us are followers of Jesus, and hopefully by the end of the week, all of us will be. But for those of you that are followers of Jesus, the deal is you have to know who your king is, and you have to know what he said. You also have to know that your life and the trial you're in can go a lot of different ways, and while God will be the one to decide that, you don't get a vote. You don't get a vote. Sometimes it turns out good, and you walk out of the fire unsinged, and other times you get burned up. And God is still God, and he's still good, right? Look at the story, and look at their faith. They know who he is, they know what he said, they don't know what he's gonna do, and it doesn't change their faith. That's the way to live a resilient life in the midst of trials. You and I are going to face trials as well, by the way. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When 1 Peter tells us that we, go, we all go through trials, anybody who's a follower of Jesus goes through trials, and those trials happen to show the tested genuineness of your faith, it's telling us there's a test in trials. And I want you just to think objectively with me for a second about who that test is for. Who are you trying to prove this to? Is that a test that, that God is grading? Is God like, well, I'm going to put Darren in the midst of a difficult circumstance. I'm going to put Darren in a relationship where he's tempted to do things that I've told him are against my plan for him, right? I'm going to put Darren in a, in a tough spot and because I just, I just don't know. Is God going like, I'm just not sure whether Darren believes me or not, so I'm going to put this trial there so I can learn something about Darren? No, right? The tested genuineness of your faith is not so God can learn something about you. He knows everything about you already. Who learns something in the midst of trials about their faith? We do. Do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith was different after they walked out of the fire? You bet it was, because they had learned something, not about God. They already knew everything here about God and what he could or couldn't do. What they learned that day was about themselves. What they learned that day was that nothing was more important to them than being faithful in the midst of the trial. When 1 Peter says we go through trials so that our faith, which is more precious than gold, can be purified, and, and there's a test of its genuineness, that test of its genuineness is not for God. It's not for other people. It's for you. Have you ever wondered, like, is my, is my faith real? Like, am I really a follower of Jesus? Do I really believe, or am I was just growing up in a Christian family or whatever? Have you ever wondered that? You want to know how your faith is confirmed in your own life? It's by passing these kinds of tests, by going through difficult circumstances and remembering who Jesus is and what he said, and that you don't know or control what he will do. They throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the firing furnace, and we'll finish this up here, uh, back to Daniel chapter 3. They throw him into the furnace, and you probably know the way the story ends, but look with me if you will. Uh, They toss him in there in verse 23, and then in 24 it says, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished And he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. There are some theologians who suggest that this might be an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus, actually, in the Old Testament, right? We don't know that conclusively. Nebuchadnezzar will refer to this fourth image as an angel, but if he was seeing Jesus, he probably would have thought that was an angel, right? They throw these men into the fire, and they are unburned. They are unsinged, and they're just walking around, right? They're just walking around, but there's not three of them. There's four of them in there. Nebuchadnezzar counts them, and he's kind of freaked out. Here's what happens next, 26. 26. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Now, we talked yesterday about the idea that Daniel and his friends had decided to say yes to some things and no to other things, right? I gotta tell you, they miss an opportunity here, but they do it for a good reason. If this were me, if I were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'm walking around in the fiery furnace with an angel or maybe with Jesus himself, And scrawny King Nebuchadnezzar outside, he goes, hey, I want you guys to come out here and see me. I'd have been like, hey, why don't you come in here, man? The water's fine, right? Come on in. You want to swim around with us in the fire for a little while? That would have been a really sort of a braggy place for them to reject the king's commandment. But they don't do it. It's important. I want you to see this. When the king... Nebuchadnezzar says to them, I want you to come out of the fiery furnace. They don't argue. They don't tease him. They don't taunt him. You know what they do? They obey him. Why? Because they've agreed to say yes to some things and no to other things. And now the king, who is their captor, he's asked them to do something. And there is no compromise of God's law for them to obey him, and therefore they do it. You see the difference? When he's wanting them to bow down to his statue, there's a compromise of who God is and what he has said. When he asks them to come out of the fire, they're not breaking any of God's laws. And so as a way to represent the faithfulness of God, they come out in obedience. You and I are constantly having to think through when do we say yes and when do we say no. He commands them to come out and they do. They show obedience at the right time. Nebuchadnezzar in 28 says this. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I want you to see that in his closing speech there of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is aware of exactly what they did, exactly why they did it, who they did it for, right? Nebuchadnezzar's final decree isn't showing fidelity to God. He's just saying, of all the gods I've heard of, their God seems like the most powerful, which isn't exactly conversion, right? But what he is aware of is exactly what they put on display, who their God is, how much power he has, and their willingness to be faithful to that God, even though they don't know what that God will do. In your life, trials are going to come. It probably won't be a bear growling at you with your brand new wife. It'll probably be something a little more mundane. But in those moments, my hope and Hume's prayer for you as we go through this book is that you will be people who can remember, because you have studied and because you've dedicated yourself to it, you can remember who Jesus is and what he said. And you can remember that he is in control. And no matter what, what do we see here in in three? Even in the fire, God is with them. There is never a time as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ that you deal with a trial alone. Not only is God with you, because the Holy Spirit indwells you because of the work of Christ, but they are not only in the presence of God or his angel, they're also in the presence of one another. The great thing about being an ambassador of the kingdom of God or being an emissary of the kingdom of Christ is that we have one another, and God is with us always. We know who he is and what he said. We don't know what he'll do, but we're faithful in the midst of that. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help these young men and women to be people of courage, that they would be people of discernment, who can tell the difference between the true God and a false God. Something that men have set up and established, that people worship, but it has no power. I pray, God, that we, they and I, would be dedicated and committed to learning more of who you are and what you've said, and that we would also find rest and peace in the recognition that we don't always know what you're going to do. We don't know how things are going to turn out with our families. We don't know how things are going to turn out with school. We don't know how things are going to turn out in relationships. You know all that, and we can trust our lives to you. Because no matter what you decide to do and no matter what comes, you are with us and you have built us for community with other followers of Jesus so we're never alone. We love you. We need you. I pray, God, that you would help these students to understand what it looks like to be resilient in the face of trials, to put their faith in you no matter what comes. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.